Sketches from Scripture presents. What is discipleship? If you are part of a church, you may have heard the term disciple or discipleship before. But what does it mean? What is a discipleship group? Is being a disciple a strictly Christian thing? What's the difference in being a student and being a disciple? How does one become a disciple? What does it look like? What are our responsibilities? Is it for everyone? How important is it? This four-part series will cover the basics of being a disciple of Christ, what it means to trust and follow Jesus. We'll standardize an extensive vocabulary, envision a fully mature disciple, and talk through the process of growing spiritually as a disciple and parenting others. The information we'll discuss is largely taken from North Boulevard Church of Christ's Discipling Handbook, which can be downloaded for free at northboulevard.com dbs. So there should be a link pinned down at the bottom of the comments there that says northboulevard.com slash dbs. And if you go to that page, that is the Discovery Bible Study page. And so if you're on your desktop, you can go to another tab or another window and do that now. If you're on your phone and and wanna wait until this is over, that's fine. But uh, you'll see some instructions about Discovery Bible Study and there's a video there that tells you how to do Discovery Bible Study. And under that video, there's a couple of text paragraphs and buried in that second text paragraph, there's a little link that says Discipleship Handbook. And I wish it weren't so difficult to find because I think it's one of the most important resources that we have, but that's where it is. So if you go to that link and look under the video, you'll see a, a green link that says Discipleship Handbook or Discipling Handbook, something like that. And if you click that, it'll open a PDF. And so I have that PDF for you. PDF, uh, the inside of it looks like this. And so this is the inside cover and the contents of the PDF. So what we're going to be doing over the next four nights is essentially just kind of walking through this PDF. Um, Now, I I know that most of you, I believe, are literate and can just read the PDF on your own. And so um, that would be great if you did that. Uh, but I, when we made the discipleship handbook, the discipling handbook, we, we made it so that it's, it's not a track or something that you just hand out, but it's something that you want to sit down and discuss with somebody over coffee or face to face or something like that. That would be best. Uh, this is my attempt at, uh, sort of recreating that experience now as we look at, um, sort of what, what discipleship means. What does this word disciple mean? What does it mean for me? What does the Bible have to say about it? Some of those things. And so we're just going to break it up over four nights. I don't have, this isn't like the previous lessons where I've got sort of extensive, you know, night by night, um, lessons that I've done before and slides and all that kind of stuff. This is going to be very informal and it's really just going to be kind of flipping through this book. So, uh, I'll have it on the screen and then you can download it, uh, afterwards and read through in more detail, on your own. Some of this I went over towards the end of the last series that we finished the wandering series, but I know we have some people tonight that have not been on any lives before that I'm aware of. And I suspect we'll have people that will tune into this series that want to 
um, listen to just these four parts and not not listen to the, the rest of the series. And that's okay. So so we're going to cover some things that maybe you've heard before. But even if you heard it in the last series, that may have been the first time that you've heard it. So it's always good to hear some of these things again, hear some of these ideas again. So, uh, so we're looking at just sort of the inside cover of the Discipling Handbook here. The front cover looks like this, and it's got this big gnarly uh, olive tree watercolor artwork on the front of it. And... Um, on the inside, it says growing disciples, planting churches. And we often use the language of making disciples. In fact, this book on the inside uses the language of making disciples. Um, but I like the word growing and, uh, particularly not just because of the artwork, obviously it goes better with the artwork and the idea of planting churches and growth and that, that whole thing. But I, I think it's, um, it puts us 21st century Western society, Americans in a better headspace for what discipleship is. So um, if you came over to my house and I had a, um, a table and I said, I made this table, then without me saying anything else, what you would probably assume is that I went and acquired raw wood from somewhere that I hewed it into, you know, the circle or whatever that I possibly lathed or carved the legs that um, I um, maybe kind of con conceived of the design myself and executed it myself and sanded it down and painted it. Right. And so, like, if I had just gotten a kit, I probably wouldn't use the word made. Right. I probably said, oh, I put this all together by myself. Right. So if I said made, you, you would you would immediately just think, okay, I went out and got the raw materials. I sort of conceived of it myself, maybe. Um, even if I was going off a blueprint of somebody else, like I made it my own with the staining or something like that, you know. But you would when you hear the word make, you have this idea that I went and did something kind, you know, kind of on my own and I'm responsible for it, and also that it's done, right? So at one point it was completely unbegun. I came in, I made it, and now it's over. The process of making is over, and now it's a table, and it's done, and we can put our elbows on it and have coffee on it, and that sort of thing. Now, if if you came over to my house, and instead of a table, I had a lemon tree in a pot in my in my living room, stood you know a four five foot tall lemon tree. And if I told you I made this tree. I mean, you would think that would be an odd choice of words, right? You would say, well, you didn't make that tree. Like, you know, only God can make a tree, right? And this is the poem, word, right? So you, 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 uh, somebody who has a command of the English language would not use that word in talking about a tree, right? Um, you know, a, 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 a father or a mother talking about their child, okay? Unless they're being humorous or unless the child is in trouble, you know, we'll not use the word make, right? I made you, right? Um, so uh, you know, that's just not the language that we use for living things. And so discipleship is very much a living thing. And I like the word growing rather than making because um, the word growing implies I had a part in it. I had a hand in it and I did a lot of work. Uh, we have farmers in our life that are very close to our family. My dad talks to the, the guys that work our farm. He talks to them every day and they are working every day. They work in the rain. They work in the snow. They work in the heat. They work in the cold. They work when they're sick. They work when they're well. Uh, the cows don't take a day off. The wheat, soybeans don't take a day off. 
And farmers don't take a day off. Farmers are really hard workers. So if I said that I grew something, you would know there was, there was something that I did. There was hard work that went into it. But I would certainly not be taking credit for making it come out of the seed or for the proper nutrients being in the soil or for the sun shining or whatever, right? So I was watching a video clip earlier today of uh, a young lady that was in a, um, I guess it was a tractor and she was planting corn and she was in the middle of planting corn and she stopped at the end of a row to do like a little live video with her phone to show what all was going on in the cockpit of this tractor. So she's up in the cab of this tractor and she's got like six different machines up there. Almost all of them have some sort of touchscreen something on them. One of them is literally an iPad that is controlling, uh, monitoring some kind of GPS something. And so she's uh, she's got like an auto steer thing on it. She's got one thing that's controlling the pressure of whatever spray she's putting on it. She's got another thing that's that's actually planting the 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 the, the corn as she goes down the row. And she's not even driving the thing as it's moving because the auto steer is making sure all the rows and everything are, are complete. And then the iPad, she can take that out. She can put it into the combine at the end of the season so that it goes right back down those same rows and, and pulls everything out. It's very sophisticated. And she's probably 16, 17 year old girl, knew how to use all this stuff. It was really something else to kind of watch somebody operate all of this equipment. Certainly she had to know how to operate all those things. She had to know how to operate all this really complicated equipment. And because of all that equipment, she had much more control over what she was doing growth-wise, planting-wise, harvesting-wise than maybe her dad did when he was her age, right? Because it was her dad's farm. She talks about doing things for her dad, communicating with her dad via Wi-Fi and everything while she's out, out there. And so certainly she's got more control now than her dad did. But no matter how much control she has, no matter how many contraptions she has, no matter how much technology she has, no matter how hard she works, she's not in control over the clouds. She's not in control over the rain. She's not in control over the sun, over the temperature. And so whenever you use the word grow, it very quickly um, implies that while I have a very important job, and if I don't do my job, something's not going to happen, the majority of what happens actually doesn't depend on me at all, right? So while she may do a lot of work to plan all that corn, God provides the sun, God provides the rain, God provides the, the warmth, God provides the, the, the nighttime for rest, the clouds, God provides the, the fall and winter for rest. And uh, without that, nothing would grow out of the ground. And so really the growth in large part is God's doing, and we have an important hand in it. We have to do it. So that's why we chose for the inside of the handbook to say growing disciples. So now the reason we say make disciples is because uh, that's what it says in scripture, right? So in the Great Commission, Matthew uh, chapter 28 and 18 through 20, uh, he says, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, in the Greek, that phrase make disciples is really just one word, and it just means disciple as a verb. That's not really a word that we use as a verb. And it is a word that can be used as a noun. In fact, it's more frequently a noun in English. And so a lot of translators, I think rightly, uh, turn it into a verb phrase by adding the word make, make disciples, right? And so, um, it, I, because I think we wouldn't understand if Jesus said, go disciple 
uh, we would know, are you, are you talking to me? Are you calling me a disciple? Is that a name? What is that? So to make it clear that it is a verb, translators add the word make. Go make disciples. By the way, that word disciple as a verb is the only imperative in the Great Commission. Go is not an imperative in the Greek. In the Greek, it is a participle, going. And so really that statement begins with as you go or as you're going or going, the assumption is that you're going to go. That's just assumed. It's not an imperative because it's already assumed. If you're following Jesus, you're going to go. Remember, Jesus says, follow me. He doesn't say, come to where I am. He doesn't say, achieve a certain level and then you can rest, right? He says, follow me. Jesus is on the move. So he says, as you go, as you're traveling, as you're following me, as you're going, disciple, make disciples, disciple people, grow disciples. And so I really want us throughout the next, you know, uh, of these four things here to really think of discipleship as, as a verb. So even discipleship is a noun. And so uh, discipleship, that's a good word. I like that word. I like to use the word discipling because that's a very active, it's a verb, right? It's an active verb. So I will use disciple as a verb. I will use discipling. So uh, that's why, you know, on the front of this, um, we have called it the discipling handbook, not the discipleship handbook. That was very deliberate. We call it the discipling handbook because that lets you know that once you read this, you're going to do something. This isn't the discipleship handbook that after reading this, you're going to know about something. Rather, this is the discipling handbook. After you go through this, you're going to know how to do something. So um, that's why we call it the discipling handbook. That's why we use the word growing disciples here, because we want to uh, keep it fresh in everyone's mind that this is an active thing. This is a verb thing. This is an ongoing thing. This is not something that has a definite beginning and a definite end, um, but that this is something that goes on and continues and has lots of complex parts to it. So we will uh, skip the table of contents because we're just going to be going through this basically in order. And uh, I'm just going to go through kind of a couple pages every night. You can see that there's 20 pages in this book or really 19, I guess. And so we're just going to go through a few pages a night and however long that takes. Great. And um, then we will um, deal with the rest of it at some other time. So tonight we're just going to go through the first couple of pages here. And so I'm going to turn over to what is, uh, I think we call it page two, actually. No, it's page one. Page one, alignment. So if you have the PDF, we're looking at the page that begins alignment. Of course, it's here on the screen uh, for those of you who aren't able to pop over to the PDF. I know the text on the screen is probably a little small for those of you just watching the live, but that's okay. I'll, I'll read what's what's important. So here on the alignment page, um, everything here is really good. And I really recommend that you read this at some point when you get your hands on this PDF and have time to read it. Now, I'm going to skip right down to the very bottom here. And at the very bottom, it says, it is important to align our definitions and understanding of a discipleship process. So in, in, the, in the light green there at the bottom, hopefully you can see that at the bottom of the page. So in the, the, the green heading there, it says, it is important to align our definitions and understanding of a discipleship process. And under that, there are three paragraphs, and these are really important, and I want to go through them each one by one. So the first paragraph reads, alignment of definitions helps everyone speak the same language so we can understand each other 
while we are on our mission. Okay, so this first one is about alignment of definitions. So if you uh, don't have words to describe something, your experience of it is going to be uh, very distant and very removed. And quite possibly your experience with it might be non-existent if you don't have words to describe it. I don't know the truth of this, but uh, I've heard it said that the word, the, the, the idea of the color blue is a relatively new phenomenon that, that concepts of the color blue have really only appeared in um, recent literature suggesting that uh, until we sort of had a concept of blue, it was something that we could not see. So the sky was white or gray. And then until we had an idea of something that we would call blue, it wasn't until then that we, oh, okay, yeah, well, that's blue. That's part of that blue spectrum. Um, think about, I'm sure you've heard that, uh, you know, the, the Eskimos have you know, 23 different words for snow or whatever, because they have all of these different uh, types of snow that they want to be able to refer to. Now, those of us down here in Tennessee, we basically have like snow or it doesn't snow, right? We might have sleet and uh, ice is really what we get down here is mostly just ice and slush, right? But uh, there they have the powder snow, then they have sort of the thick wet snow, and then they have sort of the, the dry fresh snow. And they have all these different kinds of snow that um, we would not even really be able to differentiate because we don't have words for them. Uh, the German language is notorious for having uh, very specific words to describe very specific feelings or circumstances. And some of those we bring into, into English because there's just no way to translate them into English without describing it in a sentence. And so you use the word the first time and somebody goes, what does that mean? And then you describe it in a sentence. And from there on, now they have a word that describes, encapsulates that feeling really well. Um, if you are a, a taste tester, so a barbecue contest or a sommelier, the, you know, wine taster, or, um, or if you start getting into something like, um, uh, cigars or coffee or anything that's got some kind of taste or flavor or something like that. The one of the first things you learn is the vocabulary, right? Whether it is uh, smoky or nutty or chocolate or oak or whatever, whatever the, you know, hickory, mustard, ketchup, whatever, whatever the, whatever the, the, the rubric is for whatever thing that you're, you're tasting or sampling. Once you have a vocabulary, then you start to taste some of those things and it's a little easier to define. I know that uh, for me, I'm, I like coffee. Most people that know me know I like coffee. And for a long time, I didn't really know what I liked, but it turns out I, I just kind of like some dark coffee. And that's kind of always what I got. And I knew there were some other coffees I just really didn't like. And I didn't really know why <clears throat> until I learned a couple of things. One, I realized obviously your sense of smell is a big part of taste. And uh, my smeller is not that great. And so a lot of the coffees that most people like because they have these really great aromas, I can't smell. And so all I taste is the bitterness. And so I don't like a lot of the medium roasts, but I do like a lot of the darker roasts because they are nutty. They are toasty. They are chocolatey. Those are all things that you taste on your tongue. They're not things necessarily that you smell. So of course I'm going to like those because I can actually taste them. And so I enjoy those. Um, but uh, the, the other part, besides knowing about my own limitations, was learning the vocabulary. And as I learned the vocabulary, now I can just pick up a bag of coffee and look at it and go, oh, I like this. Or I can look at it. See, I have, there's a couple of trigger words. I'm like, nope, not, I don't like that. So uh, having a vocabulary really helps you to define something. Now, the thing about vocabulary is 
It can be different at different times, and it can be different in different places or different cultures, right? So uh, if you were to have a biscuit here, you would have a big, fluffy, lard muffin, right? If you were to have a biscuit in the UK, you'd have something like a cookie. It's a little different, right? So uh, being able to be on the same page in terms of vocabulary is very important. I remember we had some missionaries that came here from New Zealand, and they were going to look for um, a piece of clothing that has a very um, innocuous name here in the United States, but for them was an extremely offensive name. And so as they described it to the, the young man at Walmart, he's like, oh, you mean this? And he said, and they were so embarrassed. And then he got on the machine and was like, you know, asking for it over the entire store. And they were so embarrassed, not realizing, of course, that that's, that word doesn't mean the same thing here that it apparently did to them. So uh, vocabulary is very important. And having the same vocabulary when you're talking with people is also very important. So that's what this first sentence is about. So I'm going to read it again. Alignment of definitions helps everyone speak the same language so we can understand each other while we are on our mission. So this is really important when it comes to discipling, discipleship, for two reasons. It's important that we have definitions, and it's important that our definitions are the same, okay? So it's important that we have definitions so that we know what we're talking about, and we have proper perspective on what we're talking about. So again, if we, uh, a lot of churches use the word disciple or discipleship, and as I talk with people, I find that they mean different things, or at least different aspects of maybe what we mean when we talk about it at North Boulevard. We're sort of talking about a very specific thing uh, in the North Boulevard community or with like um, uh, renew.org, discipleship.org, that community. They have sort of a different thing that they're talking about, which personally, I think that's that's probably the biblical, most biblical way of talking about it. Not that other churches are speaking about it unbiblically. I just think many churches speak about it in an incomplete way. So I know there are a lot of churches that use the word discipleship. And what they mean is they're talking about your, your personal spiritual development, your personal spiritual growth. Um, they're talking about your um, development of your personal spiritual disciplines, uh, development of your repentance, the development of your giving, uh, your attitude, these sorts of things. And it absolutely encapsulates that. But, um, but discipleship, discipling is much more than that. And um, those things are not to be ignored, but they are to be seen as a larger uh, thing that is, that is happening. And so it's very important that we look at the words, that we have words, but that we also have the same definition so that as we continue to discuss things down the road, we're sort of building on the same building blocks, right? Okay, uh, I think that's enough of that. So one, one more time, alignment of definitions helps everyone speak the same language so we can understand each other while we, were, while we are on our mission. Second paragraph, <clears throat> still down here at the bottom of page one, the alignment page. Uh, second paragraph on the bottom. Knowing and having a discipleship process helps us understand our mission, execute our mission, and evaluate our progress. Knowing and having a discipleship process helps us understand our mission, execute our mission, and evaluate our progress. So in the same way that we want to have definitions and have the same definitions, right? When we're talking about discipling, which is a, a process that you go through, it's an active verb, 
so it's something you do, so there's some kind of process to it, then we need to know what that process is. We need to have some kind of process um, that we are using. Now, <clears throat> the process that we're going to look at in this handbook uh, has some specific um, measurements and some specific words that it uses, and you don't have to use this process at all, but you got to have some kind of process or else how will you know if you're doing what it is that you're supposed to be doing, right? So you need to have some kind of process. Alignment in a church community or in a discipling community or even in a small group, alignment says, let's all use the same process. Not because that's the process and there is no other process, but because, again, we will have a, a foundation point, a jumping off point where we're all sort of speaking the same language in the beginning. And we can modify that as it goes, or we can borrow from here and borrow from there and sort of it'll kind of evolve along the way or develop along the way. But at least in the beginning, we should probably have a specific process that we're all using together as a reference point. And so that's really what this paragraph is about. Uh, so once again, knowing and having a discipleship process, a discipling process, helps us understand our mission, execute our mission, and evaluate our progress. Evaluate our progress. What does that mean? Well, let's go on to this third paragraph, and that will explain that a little better. Having a picture of what a mature disciple looks like helps us evaluate ourselves first, and understand where those we are growing with are. So the wording in that last paragraph is a little uh, wonky, but it's it's all the, all the words are right in there. <clears throat> Let me read that third paragraph again. Having a picture of what a mature disciple looks like helps us evaluate ourselves first and understand where those we are growing with are. So what does that mean? So this is about evaluation. And so how do we evaluate? If discipling is a verb and we have a process of how to do that, how do we know if it's being done? How do we know if it's being done well or correctly? Well, we need to have sort of a vision of what the end product is going to look like. So if we were to perfectly disciple and discipleship were to perfectly happen, what might that look like? Because then that's what we're always sort of achieving and striving for, right? Well, thankfully, we have an example of a perfect discipler in Jesus Christ, because that's what he does. He comes and he picks these disciples and he disciples them. He teaches them and he takes them along for experiences and uh, he uh, challenges them and he helps them grow and he gives them responsibility and uh, gets them to be active in, in different ministries. And then he charges them to go and do the same thing that he did. We'll look at more of that in just a little bit. So <clears throat> this idea of uh, having sort of a vision, Jesus is a great model. He's perfect, right? Well, we have a less than perfect, but still really great model in the Apostle Paul. Paul writes a lot about uh, how churches ought to operate, how churches ought to work together, how brothers and sisters ought to live uh, with each other, with one another, how people ought to evangelize, um, the way people ought to grow in their spiritual growth and their spiritual behavior and in their repentance and things like this. He has a lot to say about the word. He has a lot to say about teaching. He has a lot to say about scripture. And we see very clearly through the book of Acts and through his letters, the relationship that he has with Timothy. We see Paul's relationship with Timothy and how Timothy grows and develops. And in the last series, we talked about 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. So if you have a Bible near you, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. <clears throat> and 2 Timothy is, is probably the last letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it to Timothy just before um, 
his time was up in Rome and he was, according to church history, beheaded. And so uh, this is one of the last communications that we have from Paul. He writes it to Timothy, his protege. Tim Paul calls him my son, my son, Timothy, right? So his spiritual son, not his biological son, but his spiritual son, someone whom he thought of as a son because they were so close. And what he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. So you have from Paul to Timothy to reliable people or faithful people to others also. So you have these four generations. So if you want to hold up Paul as sort of that ideal vision of what a discipler is, or one ideal vision of what a discipler is, one way you can know if discipleship has been successful is if you, like Paul, have four generations of disciples coming after you. If you've made three generations of disciple makers. So I know I have a lot of growth left to do, but I'm very thankful for people like Jonathan Young, who is now who was somebody that was in discipleship group with me. He had lots of other people in his life encouraging him. He had lots of other things going for him, lots of other people spending time with him, lots of other people that spent a lot more time with him than I did. But Jonathan and I were good friends and very close, close like brothers, working together at the church and just being friends in general, talking about movies and having a good time. And now Jonathan and his wife, Mackenzie, they have gone to Oregon and they are planning a church there at University of Oregon in Eugene. And they are working hard and they, it's uh, the two of them and their co-minister, Kirk Gallagher, uh, the three of them are got a small apartment there together and they are having house church there and they are going out and they're meeting people and they are building relationships. And I love that. It's really remarkable. And they've gotten to uh, baptize people that have come out there to visit, uh, to help work. And they are in spiritual conversation with people there. They're involved with the Eugene Church of Christ uh, also while they're out, while they're out there. And I'm super proud of Jonathan. And so uh, even though, like I say, Jonathan had many other people in his life, that is somebody that I, I spent some time with and spent some time discipling. And now Jonathan is spending his time discipling people. And when some of those people grow up and become spiritual parents and they start discipling people, then maybe I'll start getting to some kind, something that looks like spiritual maturity. And until those on that fourth level until they are ready to start discipling other people, I've still got a lot of uh, growth that I can be doing myself. And so uh, going back then to the discipling handbook, having this last paragraph again, having a picture of what a mature disciple looks like helps us evaluate ourselves first and understand where those we are growing with are. So again, what that means is when we have a picture like Jesus, like Paul, like Timothy, when we have ideals out there of sort of what we can strive for, especially when we have so much trusted data on who they were and how they lived and how they taught and those sorts of things. When we have that picture, now we've we're all got a similar destination. So we've got the same definitions that we're using. We've got the same process that we're working through, and now we've got the same destination. So whatever kind of way we end up going and sort of straying off the foundation, that sort of thing, as long as we're sort of headed towards that goal will probably be more likely to end up together doing something that all kind of looks the same. So the idea here is not to breed a bunch of identical people. The idea here is not to breed a bunch of people that look like me or that uh, all disciple the same way or that just parrot a bunch of information. That's not the goal. The goal here is uh, what I used to say is we'll set a rhythm and then you can dance to it. Okay. So in other words, we're going to build a foundation of definitions and process and a, a vision 
And based on that, you you work within that to, to, to make things happen within the, the context that you have. So just very quickly, I'm going to read those three paragraphs again. Hopefully they should make a lot more sense now. I'll start with the light green heading at the bottom of page one. It is important to align our definitions and understanding of a discipleship process. Alignment of definitions helps everyone speak the same language so we can understand each other while we are, while we are on our mission. Knowing and having a discipleship process helps us understand our mission, execute our mission, and evaluate our progress. And having a picture of what a mature disciple looks like helps us to evaluate ourselves first and understand where those we are growing with are. So again, having that model, having that vision of where we're going, we should first use for self-assessment. Then we can um, start to think about the people that are around us that we're discipling. We're going to look just a little bit at this next page, and then we'll pick up with uh, the rest of it tomorrow night. So uh, page two, just on the right-hand side here, begins with a disciple is. And the part I really want to hammer home about this part is what's right up here at the top right, the very first title there, if you're able to read it. It says, a disciple is an apprentice, someone who learns how to do something from someone else. A disciple is an apprentice, someone who learns how to do something from someone else. So this is very important. The word disciple is not a religious term. The word disciple is... It's uh, just a term that means someone who learns how to do something. It's someone who follows a master of some kind and takes on the properties of their lifestyle is really what that means. It can be usually as religious in nature, but it doesn't have to be. Um, uh, we use the term all the time, sometimes a little tongue in cheek, but we use the term all the time when we're talking about politics or artists uh, or things like that. So uh, Caravaggio, the painter, had a certain style that he painted in, and you'll see many paintings that were created a little after his time that looked very much like his style. Well, it turns out that's someone that was a disciple of his. That was someone that studied under him and painted paintings like his. Modern day, you see Hans Zimmer's name on all kinds of movies everywhere. Well, I got to tell you, there's some movies that have Hans Zimmer's name where he did almost nothing to contribute to the music. What he did do is teach a school of composers how to write music in a manner like he does. And so they're his disciples. They learn to do music how he does music. So they're learning how to do something in the manner of the master, Hans Zimmer being the master at this point. And so many times you'll see films and you'll see Hans Zimmer's name is real big and then you'll see somebody else's name. And maybe it's that somebody else that actually did the lion's share of the composing for that film, particularly if it's a, it's a smaller film. And so uh, that still goes on today in the arts world. So the word disciple is not just a religious term. So we need to look at it just for what it means first. And simply what it means, it's an apprentice that learns how to do something from a master. That's all it means. So you can be talking about um, Christianity. You can be talking about blacksmithing. It's just, it's kind of a generic term. And so we ought to use it in that way, because if that's the term that is being used in the Greek, and it is, if that's the idea that's trying to be communicated, then that is the idea that we need to bring to the material and not bring our own religious connotations in with it. We need to read the material as if we're reading it for the first time and just sort of read the language. So this idea of being a disciple or discipleship, a disciple is someone who learns how to do something. Now, this is different from a student. So a student is someone who learns something. 
A disciple is someone who learns how to do something. You see the difference? A student learns something. A disciple learns how to do something. So uh, I remember when I was at University of Memphis, I was interested in movies. And so uh, there was an intro to filmmaking class, or actually it was called intro to film. And I was like, oh, this is great. I can take this class and I'll be introduced to the cameras and the editing and to how the process and how this is all made. And when I got there, it was really just a, a theory class. We watched movies and talked about it. And I learned a lot. And I it it did affect me very much as a filmmaker. But I, I never touched a camera, never touched an editing, we never shot anything. That's not what the class was about. It was really just a theory class. It was in a class in which I was a student of film. I was learning about film. When I got to North Carolina School of the Arts, they put a camera in my hand week one and said, go out and make a story and come back. And now I was a disciple. Now I was a disciple of filmmaking. I was learning from people that had been in the business for a long time. And I was, I had the work in my hands and they were critiquing my work and they were, they were trying to develop me uh, as a filmmaker. And they did. So that's the difference between a student and a disciple. A student learns something. A disciple is someone who learns how to do something. So we've talked about definitions and we've talked about process. So someone who is a disciple is going through that process. And someone who's a disciple maker is someone who is discipling someone. They're taking someone else through that process. So don't you don't have to feel like you have to be a master, right? You don't have to be Caravaggio. You don't have to be Hans Zimmer in order to disciple someone else. You just have to be a little farther down the road. So Jesus says, follow me. If you're following Jesus and somebody else isn't, then you're a little farther down the road than they are. So just call them to uh, follow you as you follow Jesus, uh, as Paul would say, right? So that's what we mean when we're talking about a disciple. It's an apprentice, someone who learns how to do something by watching someone else, by being around someone else. And I think the disconnect in the modern church, while we don't really do this anymore, uh, someone suggested, um, I'll remember his name here in a minute, uh, Gallaty, Rob Gallaty out of um, uh, Nashville. He suggested that the reason for this might be because of the King James Version, because uh, we have clung to the King James Version for so long. It was the first real English translation of the Bible. And uh, so it was very, um, you know, uh, everybody has it. Everybody is um, uh, familiar with it even today. The problem is, like we were talking about before, some of the words in the King James Version don't mean today what they meant in King James time, right? So, for instance, um, uh, one of the verses, uh, avoid every appearance of evil, right? And so um, I have even probably been taught in, in classes, don't even do something that looks like it might be bad because the Bible says avoid the appearance of evil. And because to us, the appearance means if it seems like it's evil, don't do it. But in King James time, that word appearance just means each time that it appears. In other words, in every form, avoid evil in all its forms, right? Because if you think about it, avoid anything that even looks evil, that doesn't jibe with Christ's life. He was accused of being a, a drunkard and hanging out with sinners and, and tax collectors and all this. He was accused of all kinds of things because of the people that he spent time with. And he never went around saying, oh, oh hey, you misunderstand. He just said, hey, I came to be with the sick, so deal with it, right? So, uh, so that can't be what that means, right? So when we learn what that word actually meant in King James time, oh, okay, now it makes sense. It just means evil in all of its forms. Got it. Now that makes much more sense. Well, we have sort of the same thing happening in the Great Commission. Because the King James Version and the Great Commission used to say, more modern versions have changed it, but used to say, go teach all nations. That's what it used to say. And so this idea of go teach in 1960s America, 
when uh, the ch- the church, particularly like uh, our my church, Churches of Christ, were really growing and, and blooming in 1960s and 70s, 50s and 60s throughout the the, the southeast and, and elsewhere. And during this church boom, we were planning churches and we were evangelizing, we were door knocking, we were handing out tracts and all kinds of things. And when the Great Commission said, teach, what did we do? We held a class. We wrote a tract. We had a fill in the blank, right? We had a, a five-point sermon where all five points begin with the same letter. Not knocking any of those things. Those things are handy. They're good tools. They're really great. I mean, this that I'm doing right now, this is a teaching. It's a class. I mean, it's uh, I'm not able to really be interactive here and it's one way giving of information. I'm showing you things on a screen, you know? So, I mean, this is a class, right? But um, that's not what teach meant in the time of King James. If you lived in King James and you wanted to learn to be a blacksmith, what did you do? You moved out of your house and you moved in with a blacksmith and you blacksmithed every day, <laughs> okay? If you wanted to learn how to uh, farm, then what would how, how would you do that? Well, even today, you would go get with um, you know, Bo and Jesse, and you'd get in the truck with them and you would watch what they do and you would do what they do. And that's how you would learn to be a farmer. You're not going to go sit and read a book about it and be a master farmer, right? So much in the same way, that word teach meant a lot more in King James time. It meant what we talk about when we're talking about being an apprentice, right? But in modern America, the word teach doesn't mean that. It means have a class, means have a worksheet, means take a quiz, right? So the better translation is make disciples, or as we've said, grow disciples, right? This idea that you need to disciple, that this is a, a verb, the, 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 the idea of, of discipling someone, of mentoring someone. And so if we can change our, our mind on that a little bit, if we can change our mind on what that means, I think that that's going to help us understand these things. We'll wrap up on this page and then we'll look at the rest of it tomorrow. So when you get the PDF, check out the rest of this page. It really begins with Matthew 4.19, which is right there in the center of the right-hand side. Uh, In the ESV, it reads, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so there are three things that Jesus says, and we'll we'll pick back up here uh, tomorrow. But there's three things that Jesus says, I will make, uh, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, follow me. So you have to do something. And the thing that you have to do is come be with me. Follow me, go where I go, do what I do, see what I see, hear what I teach. Follow me. If you do that, I will make you. And so Jesus is promising, if you follow me, I will change you into something. I will take you from what you are now and you will be something different when I'm done with you. And what is that different thing that we will be? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men or fishers for people. In other words, you follow me, watch what I do, mimic what I do. And in so doing, I will change you. I will convert you. I will change your shape until you are like me, until you are going out and you are finding people and you are harvesting people the way that I am. By the way, this uh, Matthew 4, 19, this is the first words of Jesus to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew. These are the first words of Jesus to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew. If you've been part of the last two series that we've done about the Old Testament, you'll know that I've said many times someone's first words are very important because they tell you a lot about their character and about the relationship that they're going to have with the characters with which they interact. Now, these are not Jesus's first words in the gospels. Jesus's first word uh, uh, in the gospel is just before this, Matthew 4, 17. Uh, his first words as an adult, his first words of his ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first words of the gospel. But um, the first words that he says to his disciples are these, follow me, I will make you fishers 
of men. So what I'd like for you to think about tonight until we meet again tomorrow at 8 o'clock is uh, simply to really reflect on these words. Am I following Jesus? How do I know if I'm following Jesus? Well, have I been changed? Changed into what? Fishing for other people. Have I spent time in my life reaching out for other people, mentoring other people, discipling other people, encouraging, educating, um, uh, lifting up other people? That's the mission of Jesus, fishing for people. So if I haven't been changed into someone who is a master fisherman of people, then I've still got changing to do, which means I've still got more following of Jesus to do. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.